The Gist is brought to you by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players offer the biggest selection of streaming channels, like HBO Now. Learn more and try HBO Now free for one month by going to roku.com slash the gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesco. Well, by now you've heard the news about who did well, and the news media helped put it all in context. Huge wins overnight for both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the two frontrunners each winning seven states on Super Tuesday. Yeah, except you don't win states on Super Tuesday. You win delegates. Right, NPR? Presidential contests are in. Republican Donald Trump claimed wins in seven states, while Ted Cruz won three. Right, NBC? Ted Cruz won his home state of Texas. He needed that to stay alive. Ted Cruz also won in Oklahoma and Alaska. Right, Emily Stevenson from Reuters? Donald Trump really ran the table tonight on Super Tuesday. He won a lot of states. Yeah, except you don't win states, you win delegates. Am I being pedantic? I think not. That's what every pedant says. Anyway, it would be fine to mention as a detail which states candidates acquired more delegates in, but that's just a detail. In primary politics, at the presidential level, you needn't win states to accumulate delegates, as CBS's Major Garrett must have made clear. But in politics, particularly at the presidential level, you need to win states, and that will be Ted Cruz's argument against Marco Rubio. Why the confusion? Well, maybe it's because in the presidential election, you do win the states. That's how you get elected president, to win a state. Senate races, you win a state, you get elected senator. Governor races, you win a state, you get elected governor. We're used to the idea of winning states. Or maybe it's that reporters thought the viewers would be confused, so they simplify things. For instance, last night, it actually was possible to win an entire state. Not all of them, but the one with backdoor winner-take-all systems, like Alabama. But it didn't happen. So why did everyone get it totally wrong? Well, maybe because hype and overstatement is compelling. For instance, everyone didn't get it totally wrong. But most outlets got it somewhat wrong. Now, when I say wrong, I don't mean just the phrase. It's not like saying of Justice Scalia that he was lying in state when he was actually lying in repose. It's not like that. It's a failure to properly communicate and to conceptualize the contest at hand. It's the equivalent of reporting on the World Series by telling you the Mets are racking up innings. They've won many innings. They keep on winning innings. They're coming ahead in the innings count. That's simply not how the score is kept. It will be. In two weeks, Florida and Ohio are legitimately winner-take-all states. No backdoor needed. But last night, all the contests were proportional in slightly different ways. And so that Donald Trump massive blowout, romp, which are all words that I've taken from actual headlines. What, what does that really amount to? Here's what it amounts to. 595 delegates were at stake. Donald Trump won. They're still counting. Somewhere in the 240s. Cruz won somewhere in the 220s. So it turns out Trump made out with 41% of the delegates and Cruz made out with 37% of the delegates. There's your romp. Context. Before Super Tuesday, Trump had gathered 61% of all the delegates that were allotted. When you add in Super Tuesday right now, he's only at 46% of all the delegates allotted. And yet, for some reason, you would be forgiven for thinking that today, 
Trump is more likely to be the Republican nominee than he was yesterday. Today, he's the more likely Republican nominee than he was yesterday. Okay, if John Heilman on MSNBC is right, it's only because of the time horizon. Even less of a lead, and Trump has less of a lead today than he did yesterday. But as time goes by, even less of a lead becomes harder for opponents to surmount. It's why a two-run lead in the ninth inning is more daunting than a four-run lead in the sixth inning. More sports metaphors. If this thing, if this contest were an NBA game between the Mar-a-Lago Faragos and the Texas Christian Cruises, the score would be 27 to 18 at the end of the first quarter. That is precisely the share of the total that each of those two candidates have and exactly the portion of the nominating process that we've been through. And as long as we're talking about sports, let's talk about gambling. Trump's chances of winning the nomination were 79% on Betfair, which is a good betting market, before Super Tuesday. Saw them today at 80% after Super Tuesday. But as we'll hear in a second, why debate? Why bet? Why not just wait? Wait two weeks, and then all this will be much, much clearer. In the spiel, arguments that seem like good arguments but aren't. But first, the perfect policy pundit for a wacky Wednesday after a Super Tuesday. Delegate math at last. Well, joining me now is just the perfect person to talk about Super Tuesday and delegates and math. Josh Putnam is a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at the University of Georgia who specializes in campaigns and elections. His blog, the blog he contributes to frontloading.blogspot.com, has been explaining to me all of the differences between the winner-take-all and the backdoor winner-take-all and the winner-take-most. But Josh is here to explain it to you. Hello, Josh. Hey, Mike. Now, it's looking to me like Donald Trump will come away from this, the 595 delegates at stake, with 240-something of those delegates, and Ted Cruz, maybe around 220. That is being portrayed in some media as him romping or being portrayed as him crushing, to me it seems like a tiny little lead. Not nothing, but nowhere near romping and crushing. Do I have my numbers right, and how do you look at it? I think Trump's got probably a little bit more, maybe in the, the 250, 260 range there. Okay. Still, I think your, your point is, is valid, but we tack that on to the 65 delegate lead he had coming into yesterday, and it's, it's a, a little north of 100 delegates. That's a, a good, healthy lead heading into uh, next week's contest, and certainly in two weeks' time when we hit those winner-take-all contests. They become super crucial then. Right. So it's a 100-delegate lead, which is almost the exact same size as Florida. So second place doesn't look like Cruz can win Florida, but if he could, boom, he's tied. Exactly. So I want to ask you about an idea that's being promulgated by Ted Cruz that others should drop out, should clear the path so this is a one-on-one race. I understand why it's in Cruz's interest to say so, certainly in Rubio's interest. And yet, can't you make at least a somewhat logical case that Cruz would be better off keeping more rivals in the race to deny Trump delegates? Because maybe it's not the case that Cruz, for instance, can get to the requisite number of delegates, 1,237. Maybe it's only the case that he could deny Trump that mark, but go into a brokered convention holding the second most delegates. Right. I mean, again, it's, it's a minefield of, of possibilities, right? So 
the way I'm looking at this now is, is there are two sides to this. One is uh, it kind of continues to play out kind of similar to the way 2012 did, and more and more candidates eventually just, just fall by the wayside in kind of a war of attrition. And we may get down to the point where we're able to test the one-on-one hypothesis. But the other is this protracted try-to-keep-Trump under 1237 uh, plan. You know, if everybody stays in, um, one could also say that, that you know, we, we continue with the status quo as it is, where Trump's getting these plurality wins and getting the bulk of the delegates in the process and, and building towards 1237. But why wouldn't Cruz want Kasich to stay in if that means that Trump gets denied Ohio? I guess his theory is like, well, that gives me an opportunity to win Ohio. But wouldn't his, after the idea of Ted Cruz himself winning Ohio, which could happen, I guess, let's say, wouldn't his second best scenario is that Kasich stays in and wins Ohio and denies it to Trump? Sure, sure. If it's clear that, that Kasich's going to beat Trump, um, I, I don't know that we've got that that uh, information yet. I mean, certainly the the polling has been mixed in Ohio. A few have shown Trump ahead of Kasich, even. Um, and the same is true in Florida. So, you know, again, uh, Cruz is partially ta- taking that stance um, in in self interest, right? I think all the candidates are doing this to some extent, saying, "Look, if this needs to be me versus Trump." to eliminate this possibility of, of a, a contested convention, that if Trump enters with a plurality of delegates, it's going to be hard to, to upset that. So we talk about delegates, and right now all delegates mean is, is eventual vote totals, eventual uh, ballots or, or balls to drop in that figurative fishbowl. But one day they'll turn into actual delegates, like real people. What are the rules of the real people? When can those people say... I'm not voting for the guy who sent me to this convention. Right, right. So on the Republican side, you've got this potential that you've got uh, someone that's bound to Trump but uh, is, is maybe sympathetic to, to Rubio or Cruz or Kasich or whomever. The rules vary from state to state. Again, this is, this is consistent with the, the philosophical approach of the party just to kind of leave it up to the state, the state parties to decide on how to do this. So we've got a, a mismatch of uh, different rules for dealing with this. Most states will release delegates after a, a first inconclusive ballot at the convention. Other states will uh, release them uh, after the second ballot. There are some uh, states that will reallocate uh, the, the delegates to candidates who are still active in the race and so on and so forth. What power does a candidate himself have to say, I am telling all my delegates to back, you know, Rubio says, I'm telling all my delegates to back Kasich, or Kasich says, I'm telling all my delegates to back Cruz. Would they be able to do that or just send the message out and hope they're actual human beings who've pledged them, get the message and do as they say? It's it's more the latter. Um, again, they're they're uh, those delegates will be bound to the candidate, but the candidate's not holding a gun to their head saying you've got to vote for for my preference here. I mean, again, they're the, the delegates are on their own to come to whatever conclusions they want to um, after they've been released. Um, certainly, if if the candidate they were bound to, if they were sympathetic to that candidate, they may follow along with or be influenced by uh, an endorsement by their former candidate for another candidate. But again, they don't they don't have to do that. And when we're talking about establishment candidates, we know who delegates will be elected officials, people who, you know, they could trust people they trust, say you could trust. But when it's a guy like Donald Trump, who are his delegates going to be? 
We don't know. Um, I mean, at this point, um, there are some states that require candidates to file slates of delegates ahead of time. So we, we have some idea that, that Trump has been able to, to meet those goals in those states. But it's, it's a, a bigger question in states that, that choose the delegates to fill the allocated slot through a caucus system, essentially. It's in those particular systems where you may end up with delegates that are bound to Trump but sympathetic to another candidate, those sorts of delegates that would, you know, be willing to wait out that first ballot, cross their fingers as inconclusive, and and be released for the second ballot in most cases. What do you think of the chances of a brokered convention? I, I've I've called it a long shot um, and continue to do so. But um, again, what's different this time is that you've got a, a front runner that the establishment and the party is is a, a bit queasy with. So. They're at least motivated to potentially move in that direction of a contested convention as a means of, of uprooting him, if, if it comes to that. And what do you think of the chances of a Trump being the nominee by getting more than 1,237 delegates? He's on track for that now. Again, I'll point towards March 15th and those, those big hitter winner-take-all states, Ohio, Florida, and even Arizona the next week. If one candidate is able to get those, particularly if it's Trump, he's on his way to 1237 quite easily, I would say. Mm-hmm. If it's split or if another candidate is able to, to sweep all three of those states, then, then they're back in the game, if not ahead of Trump in the delegate count at that point. And, and um, they'd really have to move quickly to, to consolidate delegates and then try and get to 1237 on their own. But, but chances would be pretty good that it would head toward uh, an inconclusive result by, by the uh, beginning of, of June. Do you think Trump is more of a favorite today than he was yesterday, and if so, by how much? Uh, as I said, right, um, the, the best thing we can do is to kind of look at, at how this process has worked and the limited number of times we've seen it in the past. Now, we've got a small in here, but winners and front runners tend to be the nominees. Um, he's, he's in a good position to, to keep that going. So what I'm hearing from you is you'd rather not say if he's more of a likely nominee than yesterday, because why say it now? You can't say it with confidence. We'll have so much more that's clear on March 15th. Let's just wait for March 15th rather than trying to make that very dicey prediction or pronouncement right now. That's right. I'm doing my job as a social scientist to say I've got to gather more data before I can give you a more certain answer. Well, thank you for being uh, our sample size of one excellent expert, Josh Putnam, who is a lecturer at the Department of Political Science at the University of Georgia. Thanks so much, Josh. Glad to join you, Mike. Thanks. Roku. Have you heard about Roku? Let me tell you about it. Roku players give you the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now. Plus, they have voice search unbiased search results, unless you're maybe searching for Hannity's show, then it's an unbiased search result of a biased show. And private listening via the Roku remote or your mobile app. With HBO Now, you get all of HBO, every season, every episode of HBO's addictive original series, past and present, plus the biggest and latest movies before any other streaming service. You get it? You could watch the latest season of Game of Thrones or Dream On classic HBO series. There's no TV package required. You just get the Roku. You don't have to worry about subscribing to cable. It gives you TV the way you want it. You can search by actor. You can search by title. You can search by director. 3,000 channels, 300,000 movies. You can try it free for a month. You go to roku.com slash the gist to learn more about Roku players and get a free one month 
HBO Now trial. You might want to time this to the return of some of your favorite series, or you might want to weigh in and watch every episode of every HBO show ever one month at roku.com slash the gist. And now the spiel seems like a good argument. So there is a case that was argued before the Supreme Court today, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. At issue is should abortion clinics be required to have admitting privileges to local hospitals? Sounds like a good argument, right? Would lead to safer abortion clinics. Yet that law can be manipulated. In fact, it was clearly designed to be manipulated. And it's doing exactly what it was intended to do, which is to close down abortion clinics. Texas has lost half its clinics. Hospitals will not give abortion doctors admitting privileges. And the state law disallows what they call the transfer rules, meaning one doctor can say, yes, this doctor has privileges to admit at my hospital. Texas is down to 10 clinics. There are only six cities in Texas with clinics. Texas has some really big cities. We all know that Texas is the second biggest state in population, the second biggest state in size, really the biggest state if you think of all the normal states instead of Alaska. I mean, and we have like Corpus Christi. There is a city with over 300,000 people. More people live in Corpus Christi than live in St. Louis. The closest abortion clinic to Corpus Christi is in San Antonio. Why? Well, they can't say why. The why is, duh, we're trying to ban abortion. They can say it's to protect the health of the mother. Oh, all right. Well, that seems like a reason to at least think about. The obvious follow-up is, does it protect the health of the mother? And here's where it gets interesting. Before I tell you what the answer is, I'll tell you this. It doesn't matter what the answer is. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, right below the Supreme Court, upheld the Texas law, and it said that as long as there's, quote, any conceivable rationale for an abortion regulation, even one that's based on, quote, rational speculation unsupported by evidence or empirical data, then judges should accept that argument without further inquiry. In other words, when someone says, hey, it's to protect the health of the mother, The appeals court is saying a judge should not ask, well, does it protect the health of the mother? Now I'll give you your answer. It doesn't. But let's go on. This idea of rational speculation unsupported by evidence or empirical data, that is what so often goes on in bad arguments. Sometimes it's driven by lies, you know, global warming's a hoax. Sometimes it's driven by a complex series of self-deceptions. Gay marriage will hurt my marriage. But often, arguments come down to one side marshalling overwhelming evidence and the other side making an argument that just seems right. Like, I interviewed John Lott, a gun researcher who has a book called More Guns, Less Crime. Does that seem right? Now, to me, it doesn't, but he says it. Certain number of people say, yeah, that seems right. If I had a gun, that'll stop the bad guys. That's all we need to do. Do we need to pursue the issue of more guns, more people? Do we need to empirically check it? John Lott refuses to acknowledge anyone who casts doubt on his opinion. And most people who subscribe to that idea, more guns, more people, aren't looking for support by evidence or empirical data. It's just a rational speculation, right? Like all these Republican candidates who said, you know, if everyone in Paris had been armed, they could have stopped the terrorists. Is that true? Doesn't matter. It's just a decent rational speculation. Are we lazy? Sure, we're lazy. 
Are we overwhelmed by arguments? Yeah, there's a lot of arguments out there. But I think what's really going on is that our brains aren't really structured to go that deep beyond the first blush. Yeah, seems like a compelling argument type reason. That quality probably kept us alive in the Serengeti. It's not purely reptilian. There's a little bit of thinking involved, but that's all there is, a little bit of thinking. And who has time to adjudicate? Why do we like the arguments we like? Is it because they're good arguments? Nah, it's mostly because we like them. We want to point to any rationale. We don't think of it as being a bad rationale or a rationale that doesn't check out. We kind of want to point to any rationale and says, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like if you're the kind of person who wants to take the goons out of hockey, right? You don't want the NHL to employ these guys whose job it is to fight. You might say something like, well, if you take the fighting out, it will just make the superstars more vulnerable. There is no one there to enforce the rules if someone hurts your superstar. All right, that seems rational. Does empirical data back it up? It does not. But the people who want the goons in hockey never get to that point. How about mandating seatbelts? There's a libertarian argument that goes like this. You know, if you mandate seatbelts, people will stop being so careful themselves. They'll drive more recklessly because they think they're impervious to injury. All right, maybe there's a rationale there. Let's check it out. No, let's not check it out. Let's keep making the argument because when you do check it out, it doesn't work. And I'll give you another one. Diet Coke. That should work, right? We get so many of our calories and sugary drinks. You take the sugar out of the drinks, you'll lose weight. Only thing is, it doesn't work. But it seems like a rational argument. Rational speculation unsupported by evidence or empirical data. This is the exact phrase I think you should use when you get into an argument. If someone says to you, maybe we shouldn't have affirmative action. Maybe African Americans would be better off going to a less advanced school, a slower track school where they do better. You might say to yourself, you know, I think that's rational speculation unsupported by evidence or empirical data. Of course, the person you'd be saying that to has just died. It's Judge Scalia. And even when he was alive, he wasn't much listening to those arguments anyway. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi had a strong showing in the Minnesota caucuses, which was a must win for her stated desire to have a strong showing in the Minnesota caucuses. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, underperformed expectations of being able to stand that guy with the weird hair who CNN puts on to defend Trump. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has determined there is no path forward. He will not participate in the next Detroit debate, yet he still demands metaphors concerning fruit salad. The gist, we are not dropping out. We're just flying to another state to change clothes. And then we'll drop out. Mpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.